0: Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message. Praise God for reminding us we're all in this together with Him. Amen? Praise God. I want you to take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. On Wednesday nights, I've been teaching through the book of Mark. Mark chapter 11 is where I'm going to go there today. You brought your Bible to church. Say amen. Mark chapter eleven, beginning in verse twelve. I'm going to read a lengthy passage of scripture, and then I want us to just uh, take a look at that to really understand what this passage really means. And then I'm going to give you some some application to what to what the scripture shows. So in Mark chapter eleven, verse twelve, the scripture says, "And the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus and his disciples. Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance, that's very important. So if you look at that, that that little phrase ties everything over the next dozen scriptures together. Seeing in a distance. okay. So if you want to underline that in your Bible or highlight it on your phone or iPad, whatever. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out, If it had any fruit, and when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, returning back to Jerusalem, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it. And it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. So that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Lord, I pray that you would take this scripture, this word, implant it into our hearts, Lord, today. Challenge us and help us to grow from it, Lord. Let us see your truth, let it change our hearts. Let it change our motives. Let it change our attitude, our perspective. Let it change our actions. And Lord, may it change our minds and everything about us today. Let your word, Lord, not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever seen anything at a distance that looked great, but then when you got up close to it, it was not what you expected? Now, I'm not talking about if you're 16 years old and you're looking at a girl or a girl looking at a guy okay i know that's the first thing that some of you thought of but you can look at things like a like if you notice a car you might see a car and it's got a it's got a 20 foot paint job on it which means you get within 20 foot and it's not what you expected Sometimes we have things like that in life where we see things at a distance because we know what they expect to, to have, but when we get up close, we don't find exactly what we're looking for. There is a uh, an art term, it's called uh, pointillism, and it's a, it's a, it's a term that, that is used to describe art that is supposed to be viewed from a distance. That's why in many art galleries you'll have a rope that stands between you and the photo or the picture of the painting. That's not so that you can not touch the, the, the painting. It's so that you will see it from a distance because that's the way things are measured. One of the great um, examples of this is Monet. How many of you have heard of Monet? Claude Monet was an impressionist uh, at the turn of the 19th century, and he, he painted artwork uh by using dots and smears and monet impressionist works are only supposed to be viewed at a distance because when you get up close it's terrible okay let me just show you a picture of monet's uh lilies on a pond this is this is this picture it's a beautiful picture okay now i know that our screen will not do it justice and just by the way we're getting a brand new screen coming within the next brand new everything this is Lilies on the Pond by Claude Monet. It was, I think it was done like 1899, somewhere around there. Okay? But if you get up close to this picture and this painting, here's what you see. That's what you see. It's a mess. It's terrible. Monet never used the color black. He used multiple colors to produce dark tones. He never used black he would he would never use grays he would only use multiple colors blues and, and purples and he would mix all of these colors together but when you pull away go show the first picture again when you pull away, you see the beautiful colors he never used those those colors that that would be limiting on the on the distance but he used he used the a plethora of different colors up close it looks like a mess far away from the distance it's beautiful it's something it's it's a masterpiece it's a monet in verse 13 you see jesus in our passage as he and the disciples are walking from bethany toward jerusalem the scripture says in verse 13 that seeing in a distance a fig tree jesus was hungry and Jesus and his disciples are going on a road trip. They were moving from Bethany to Jerusalem, which is about a two-mile hike. Let me tell you something. Some of you can't make it from the couch to the, to the uh, bedroom without stopping by the refrigerator because it's too far of a walk. Well, Jesus won't... I got some amens on that. Jesus was on his way to, to Jerusalem with his guys, and he needed a snack. He wanted something to satisfy him. He was on this little short road trip. And he gets hungry, and so he sees in the distance this fig tree. He sees leaves on this fig tree, and he expects this fig tree to satisfy his cravings. But when he gets there and he examines the fig tree, he's disappointed because what what does he find on this fig tree? Nothing but leaves. He finds nothing on the fig tree but leaves. And then at the end of verse 13, we seem to have the explanation, don't we? What does it say? it says that it was not the season for figs. It wasn't the season for figs. Well, if it wasn't the season for figs, then the question arises, why would Jesus curse this fig tree if it wasn't even supposed to be producing figs? What's the dilemma here? The dilemma is Jesus seems to to be a little bit petulant. Jesus seems to be a little bit judgmental and vindictive. Why would Jesus curse a tree that's not supposed to be producing fruit because it wasn't producing fruit. Why would Jesus do this? Let me just give you a real quick horticultural lesson in a fig tree. Fig trees uh, in that part of the world were harvested in late summer. They were uh, harvested around August. And they were there's lots of them in that part of the world. And at that time of the year, you could pull those figs off And they were soft and and they were supple and they tasted about like candy. You know, how many of you like Fig Newtons? Anybody in the room? Fig Newtons. How many of you just makes you sick thinking about them? Yeah. It's like eating candy. It was a candy. So Jesus, hungry, on a road trip, stopping by to get some sweet candy, makes sense. Jesus wanted something. He sees a tree. It's got leaves on it. Here's the thing about trees, we, those fig trees. We know that they weren't harvested until late in the summer. But in Mark chapter 11, when this is taking place, it's most likely the spring. Well, it has to be spring because in just about a week, it's going to be Passover. And so that means that the time of year was about March or April. Well, about a fig tree, in the early spring, what a fig tree will do is that figs won't mature, but they will still produce fruit. And you say, well, "How's that work, Pastor? Well, here's what happens. In early spring, a fig tree will produce what's called a knop. Some of you, that's the first time you ever heard that time, term, but a knop are the little round things that, that turn into figs. And actually what a fig tree does is those knops, the figs, grow and start budding in early spring before the tree Produces leaves. Are you tracking with me now? So these knops, these these figs, these soon-to-be figs in a few months, they're already on the tree before the tree even has leaves in the spring. After the leaves all fall off in the winter and it starts producing leaves, it's reverse of a lot of other trees where deciduous trees, they'll have the leaves and then they begin to produce the fruit. Not so with the fig tree. The fig tree begins with the knops and those knops slowly develop into the figs and then the leaves start to flourish all over the plant now knops aren't as tasty but they're still edible they're satisfying when i was a kid we used to um chew on all kinds of things we'd be out in the fields playing and there'd be uh johnson grass and we'd pull off a head of johnson grass and we'd chew on that johnson grass kind of got a sweet flavor or we would you know stick um you know heads of of wheat or something just maize milo we just chew on it and stuff some of you have to be careful cuz some of it was poisonous and we just chew on it just to have something just to chew on just something like that jesus is looking for something edible he sees this tree it's got leaves all over it which tells him it's a fig tree that has leaves and previously it should have had knops which are edible and i can munch on those till we get to jerusalem and i can find some something else that's going to satisfy me a little bit better so these nops that are that are edible, they're not ripened. But when Jesus sees this, he finds none of those. He doesn't find those. And he's disappointed because this tree's full of leaves. It had, it's supposed to have already had nops on it. It's supposed to have young, immature figs on it. But it wasn't producing anything. And what Jesus is trying to make this point is that this tree will eventually not satisfy anybody. When harvest comes, there will be nothing to harvest. Because it did not fulfill the purpose of producing the knobs. It didn't produce the figs. Now I want you to think about that application. Think about that as you see what happens next. Because what Mark does is he tells this story all with a specific reason. He talks about this fig tree that's supposed that has leaves that you would expect that would be producing the, the fruit of, On the inside, from a distance, it looked like it was producing, but it didn't. And then Jesus moves to the next scene, and where is he? He's in the temple. Jesus walks into the temple. He enters the temple, which was the day after Sabbath, because if you remember, I preached last week. I talked about the dinner with Lazarus and Mary broke that. That happened on the Sabbath. They were all at home. This is happening on Sunday. Isn't it something that Jesus arrives to the temple on Sunday, the final week of his life? He arrives there on Sunday. This was the last Sunday before He would be resurrected. Jesus finds Himself in the temple and He expects to see people focused on spiritual matters. He expects people to be focused on things of the heart, focused on hearing the Word of God. He expects people to be in the house of God in prayer. And instead, what does He find? He finds a host of activity that doesn't resemble anything that God intended for there to be inside the temple. From a distance, the temple looked like it was filled with the people that were pursuing God. But when he got into the temple, where was the prayer? Where was the eager hunger for the for the good things of God? Where was this eagerness to learn of God? Where was the Word? Where were the hungry hearts who were looking to be satisfied by this seemingly leafy temple? So Jesus sets the record straight. And what does He do? He quotes Isaiah chapter 56. He starts throwing out the money changers. He starts turning over the tables of the merchandise sellers. He he prohibits people from, from going about uh, activities don't contribute to the purpose of the house of God. And he quotes Isaiah when he says, my house should be called a house of prayer. But you turned it into a den of thieves. You turned it into something that's not even resembling. all you." I, I came up this mountain, approached the temple, and it looked leafy and green. It looked like it was really something. It looked like that there should be fruit inside. But as I began to examine and pull the leaves back, I noticed that it was not producing anything. The next morning in verse 20, you see that the fig tree is seen by Peter. And he's shocked. It's withered. But he doesn't just say that it just withered, the leaves wilted. What does he say? Verse 20, it says, it was withered from where? From the roots. It's very source of life. It's very source of 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 production its very source of living had dried up peter was shocked he couldn't believe it and immediately what does jesus do jesus begins to explain the power of prayer and its place in the life of a believer And that's how Mark chapter 11 ties this story together. That's how the fig tree and the temple and the withering of this tree and Jesus' teaching on prayer, that's how it all ties together. What seemed to be so leafy, what should have been producing all types of fruit, yet when you got inside, it was very disappointing. And because it was not producing fruit, what happens? It dries and withers like the like the fig tree like the temple or can i say like the church or can i say like the believer you see the modern version of christian faith offers lots of platitudes but many of those platitudes are without power and they can't have power without the laying hold of god in prayer without prayer most of christianity becomes shriveled down into trivial cliches. Cliches that are easy to be posted in 141 characters on Twitter or with a neat picture on Facebook. And so our faith gets, gets reduced down and compressed into nothing more than catchy lines that someone catches up to. It looks leafy. It looks showy. It looks like that everybody knows, hey, this is exactly what we need to do. And from one thing to the next, from day to day, you can see the various trivial posts that you go out there. And I'm not just on Facebook or or Twitter. I'm talking about just some of the things that we think and some of the things that we see. It's reduced down to trivial cliches. Aldous Huxley, he's not even a Christian, he was an atheist. He wrote The Brave New World, one of the best books that I've ever read. He said, the third petition of the Lord's Prayer is repeated daily by millions of people. You know what that third petition is? Not my will, but yours be done. Let your will on earth be as it is in heaven. May it be on earth. He says that third petition is repeated by millions who have not the slightest intention of letting anyone's will be done but their own. They say it, but they have no intention of following through with it. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, made a statement. He said, God does nothing but by prayer and everything with it. It is the source, it is the root of It is the production of life. God's power is let loose when people pray. It's a very simple equation. When there is no prayer, there is no power. When there is no prayer, there is no life. Prayer equals life. Prayer equals power. Prayer equals satisfaction. Prayer equals fulfillment. Prayer equals answered prayers. Prayer equals the impossible. Without it, there is no life. It withers. The Christian life withers without the sustenance of communication with God. You can look leafy and you can look showy and you can look like you you should be producing fruit. But when you get right underneath it, when you begin to examine the heart and the life and the mind and the motives, there is nothing there without prayer. Today in a lot of churches, people have substituted prayer for other activities. Now, I want you to take this the right way because we have an incredible worship team. We have an incredible worship team. I know their hearts. They don't stand up here just to sing songs to you on Sunday. They're not here to entertain you, church. I want you to know that. They're not here to perform for you. Our musicians don't use their talents so that they can get applause. They're here so that they can lead us skillfully into the presence of God. So that you can shut out everything else and you can focus upon Him. But I want you to know that in our modern version of Christianity, there has been such a focus on praise and music and worship to the extent that it has canceled Time of prayer and devotion and quietness unto God. Praise may be the invitation for God's presence to come. Thank God we have a wonderful team that helps us every Sunday. Maybe you have it in playing in your car. Maybe you have worship going on at your house. Praise is the invitation for God to come. Lord, I'm worshiping you. God is attracted to your praise. He's attracted to your worship. He is attracted. His presence goes where there is praise and where there is worship. But here's what I want you to understand. Prayer is the landing strip on which God arrives. You can invite Him to come and you can invite Him to land right in the midst of your, of your home and right in the midst of this church, but if we do not pray. We do not create the place where He can land and stay and move and do among us. Prayer is the landing strip for God to pray. To arrive. Prayer is that landing strip. It's, praise is wonderful, but it doesn't replace the life-changing, earth-shaking power of prayer. You can't sing your way to salvation. You can't sing your way to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's part of it, but it is not the way. I've seen people stand for hours in a concert and even in church worship services. But I also and, and, and sing songs, but I have also seen Christians today who have been saved for decades, who have never laid before God on the carpet face down for even an hour of prayer. Saved for years, been in church all of their life, but they cannot spend any time in prayer because it's too taxing. Too many people had rather be entertained. That's really the truth, isn't it? In our American culture, we're so used to entertainment, we have drug it into the front doors of the church. Now, once again, our worship team stands up here. I know their hearts. But we'd rather have wonderful music that's just exceptional, perfect. Nobody ever misses a note. And inspired stories... We want the preacher to to tell us just a really neat story so that we can go off and man, we can just that was great, and then forget it by Monday. But we don't want to invest time in passion and prayer. In verse twenty two through twenty four, Jesus teaches as as he closes that story, as he illustrates through the fig tree and through the and, and his actions through the temple. He talks about this metaphor. He uses a mountain. And I told Shannon as we were singing this song, Bridget, I don't even know the song. The last song we sang, I don't even know what it was, but it fits everything that I was going to say today. Because metaphors are in these, these metaphors of mountains, he talks about moving mountains. If you have faith, have faith in God. They're insurmountable obstacles. You see, between Bethany and Jerusalem, there was a mountain. Jesus had to walk over a mountain to get to Jerusalem, back and forth, twice. We saw it in this story. He had been in Jerusalem. He's coming back. He's going back over the mountain. And I'm sure as Jesus was walking over this hill, he looked at that and that's what he caused because Jesus, everything was an was a object lesson for the Lord. And as he walks over this mountain, he says to his, to his disciples, he says, I want you to just have faith in God. You've seen all this stuff that I've showed you. You've seen this withered tree. You know why. But listen, insurmountable objects are no problem for me. Those obstacles, those mountains that block your dreams, the mountains that block your purposes, the mountains that block up your marriages and stand against your children and their futures and your health. Have faith. We know that it requires faith, In order for us to receive, right? You can't please God without faith. Well, how much faith is required? What does the Bible say? As small as a mustard seed, it doesn't take much faith. But what do you do with that seed, friends? What do you do with that seed? Every seed that I know of, every seed that I know of, if it is going to produce fruit, what first must it be done? It has to be planted. The only way that your faith can produce fruit is if it's planted. It's talking to Hank and Jill. They they're talking about their garden. How many of you got your garden started? I hope you don't, man, because it's you know it's still a little, it's not Easter yet. No white shoes and no tomatoes right now. you got to plant those seeds. How do you plant the seed? Well, you get out there and you dig you a hole. You get down on your knees. Are you with me? You get down on your knees and you take that faith, that little seed that's going to produce fruit in a few months, and you dig you a hole. You shape it up, you make sure that there's no weeds around it. You you pluck things out. You're on your knees and you take that seed and you plant that seed in the ground and you cover that seed. And with your faith, you're believing, you're you're trusting that that little plant that you planted is going to produce something. My friends, it's the same way with the Lord. That's what Jesus is explaining. That faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So just have faith in God and you can speak to the mountain. What is he doing when you're speaking? You're praying. Prayer is the method of planting the seeds of faith into the soil of God's goodness and His love in order to produce the, the miracle that everybody is wanting and looking for. That's what prayer does. And the reason why so many people are confused in their spiritual life today and in their walk with God is because they believe that, every, that they have done everything right. That they've gone to church That they've read their Bible. That they've been good. They haven't cussed in a week. They're doing it right. They're trying. And yet it's not working out for them. Why? Because they forgot to pray. They forgot to plant that seed in the ground. They've served. They've worked. And they've had poor results. They were like the disciples who went to cast out demons. And what happened? That demon tore them up. And Jesus said this only comes from prayer and fasting. There's no there's no quick, you know, five-step plan to casting out devils. There's no quick, you know, seven steps to removing the mountains from your life. No, 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 it comes through prayer. You can read books, you can go to conferences, you can take seminars, to be a better spouse, to be a better parent, to be a better employee. But if you haven't spent time in prayer, my friends, hearing from the heart of God, planting your faith into the ground of God's goodness and love, you will not see the fruit of those beliefs. Some people end up in a spiritual rut. You know what a rut is? It's a grave with both ends knocked out. A spiritual rut come when we aren't committed to prayer. I've seen a lot of people who have faded out of, out of church. They're here, and man, they're hot and on fire, and they really are pursuing God, and I start, I start to see them fade. I can tell you the reason why that fade comes. It's because there's a lack of prayer in their life. There's a lack of prayer. It usually begins there because, you know, I know that we can talk, on, talk for hours on the phone. But when it comes to prayer, something happens to our voice. If you want to move forward, you want to move out of a rut. You can move forward without friends, you can move forward without money, you can move forward without jobs, you can move forward without your help, but you can't move forward without prayer in this life. It takes prayer. God answers sometimes our prayers quickly. But most of the time, it takes a, lot, a while. He wants persistence. How many of you own a crock pot? If you own a crock pot, raise your hand. Let me see. you. Now, how many of you own a microwave? That's 100% participation right there. If a microwave will heat up food, Why do you want a Crock-Pot? It's because the final product is different in a Crock-Pot. I like me some Crock-Pot cooking. Shannon's got three Crock-Pots. We don't need a microwave. But when she cooks food in the Crock-Pot, she cooks it slow simmers it out oh praise the lord y'all ready for lunch <laughs> you see what god does when you pray is he turns it off of like a minute 45 full power beep and he turns it down to simmer and he just allows it to simmer. As you're praying, it's just simmering. It's taking time. It's not one big blast of heat. It's not stirring the molecules, rubbing them together so fast on the inside it just cooks it without any control. No, no, no. In a crock pot, there's control. There's purpose behind it Because you're wanting every part of that Food of that meat, of that steak, of that roast, of those potatoes. You want every part to be cooked evenly. You don't want any part to be overcooked and any part underdone. But that crockpot slowly cooks every part of it just exactly the way it needs to be done. And God often answers our prayers in the same way. With this crockpot slow simmering way to get to maturity. This crockpot idea is what matures believers because you consistently pray, just like the woman who consistently was persistent. What does it do? Let me just give you four quick things. These aren't in your notes. But it gives God time to prepare our hearts properly for the answer to come. Some of you, you've been praying for God's answer for many, many months, many, many years. And let me just tell you, if God answered the prayer, you would not know how to handle it. If God answered that prayer immediately, you would not know how to deal with it. The second thing is God tests our motives. You know, there's a lot of times that we say things because we just shoot our mouth off and we and and we want it, but we want it because we want it. Not because it's good, not because it's right, but because we want it. And I want it now. God tests our motives. God also can alter the situation that you're praying about. Isn't it amazing that sometimes as you're praying, the whole situ- what you've been praying for and how you've asked God to, 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 to answer your prayer, God alters the situation and you have to alter your prayer because it's not the same prayer anymore. Because the situation's changed. It may be that God is trying to change another person's heart. Because when you pray, I want you to understand, it doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody around you. Maybe God's working on somebody else while you're praying this prayer. That's how God, this is the slow cooking. So Jesus sees this at a distance. But he sees no fruit on the fig tree. And when he arrives at this leafy, green temple, I'm being euphoric, euphemism here, he finds not its purpose being fulfilled. And he says, look, my house should be a house of prayer. Because when you pray, that's when miracles happen. When you pray, that's when lives get changed. And when you pray, that's when things are transformed. All this other stuff, it's not necessary because... Prayer is the root lifeline. It's the root system of the child of God, of the believer. So here's my question, and I'm going to close with this. Why, then, don't we pray? If we know that. I've preached this. Some of you could come up here and you could preach this exact same message. And here's all you have to say. You need to pray. I have never met anybody and I know that I don't think that I would be 100% participation on this. How many of you have ever met someone who has said, "Boy, man, I've been praying way too much. I need to pray less in my life." I really need to cut back. I mean, this is prayer stuff. You know, I, I you know, I need to get closer to Jesus. I need to pray less. I've never heard anybody in all of my years of ministry say, "Man, I'm praying too much." It's the opposite. We always feel like, man, I need to pray more. I need to I need to I need to seek the Lord more. So the question is why don't we? Part of it is because we're just not motivated to. Have you noticed when things hit the wall and hit the fan, that's when everybody starts praying? Is it not true? Here's the motivations to pray. I'm gonna just give you five quick things and we're gonna close. It's on your notes. If you want to follow along. First of all, prayer empties the heart of its worries. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of the seed and the sower. Verse 22, he says, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life. Can everybody just say that? The worries of this life. Say it again. The worries of this life. And the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out, making it unfruitful. One of the things that happens to every believer is that weeds grow up in our life. There are constant weeds. Right now, your yard is sprouting with, leaves, with weeds. There's weeds everywhere. You thought that zero degrees minus two would kill everything? Not weeds, not dandelions. They just grow. They grow in Antarctica. You can't kill them because the weeds will grow up in every. Yard and they grow up in every life. We have worries. We have our chill our children. We have our jobs. We have our, our bank account. We have our house. We've got our car being broke down. We've always got something. There's weeds, constant worries, constant cares, just always being thrown at you, always, over and over. And if you're not careful, what will happen is those weeds will begin to choke out the very fruit that you're trying to produce in your life. So what do you do, Pastor? If it's just a natural thing for us to grow weeds, what do we do? Prayer, friends. Prayer empties our heart of its worries. Prayer is the only herbicide that will prevent weeds from growing. Prayer is like pre emergence that you put down on your yard to keep crabgrass out in a month or so. Prayer is, is the roundup that kills the stuff that will choke out your good grass, what you're trying to produce. Because we are, we are full of worry. Matthew 6, 11 says, Just pray this, say, Lord, would you just give me today my daily bread? What a great way to empty yourself of worry of not having enough. Lord, you're on my side. If God be for us, who can be against us? Lord, empty my heart of the worries that I'm not going to be able to make. Empty my heart of the worries of this job. Empty my heart of the worries of making payroll. Empty my heart of the worries of making it to the end of the month. Prayer, my friend, will wrap its arms around you and just encourage you. Man, I've seen it so many times in my own life. When I'm up against it and there's weeds as tall as my eyes can see, I don't see anything in my life but weeds. And what do I do? Oh, God, I better find my prayer time. I better find the closet of prayer. I better come to the altar. And what happens? It's like a giant weed eater guy just saws those weeds down. Because prayer empties the heart of its worries. Peter says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. I'd rather have God caring for me than anybody on this earth. My wife cares for me. My kids care for me. My parents care for me. My grandparents care for me. But when I cast my cares on Him, He cares for me. Secondly, prayer acknowledges that the answer is beyond your ability. There are things that you have to admit that are out of your control, right? It's, it's upsetting that sometimes we think that we can control everything in our life, but there are things that you can't change. And it's out of your control. And so what prayer does is prayer acknowledges that the answer that's going to come is outside of my purview. It's outside of my ability to change. So we humbly admit that, God, we are powerless. That's what we, we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm all out of options. I've tried it my way. doesn't work. Lord, will you intervene here? I can't do it. They said they can't do it. Nobody can fix it. When we are found ourselves and we look at ourselves and we say, man, I am powerless. When you're in prayer, all of a sudden... It's like the room lights up and you see that there is a greater power of a far higher wisdom that, is, that you are praying to that sees every aspect of the challenge facing, of the obstacle facing you. Prayer shows me just how small and needy that I really am. I heard this week that if you were to get on a spaceship and you were to, to fly with, with, with the largest telescope from earth, and you were to carry that large telescope, the the biggest, best telescope from the earth, and fly to the closest star, that you would take that telescope and you would try to turn it around and look back at the earth, you couldn't even see the earth from the nearest star with the most powerful telescope. What does that tell me? That tells me we've got a big, big God. thirdly is that decisions and directions come from prayer. Our instant society, you know, we're we're we don't like to wait. We don't like to we we want to we want God to always just be be speaking to us and telling us something. We're trying to make a decision, this decision has to happen quickly. God, I need you to I need you to speak to me. I need to know. I had a young man just this week asked me, so How do you pray? And then his follow-up question was, "How do I know when God's talking?" I was like, "Well, you got to shut your mouth first enough, first of all, and allow Him to talk." I want you to remember this. You remember back in school? Some of you remember that really well. Some of you wish to forget that. Think about it in school it was Friday. You're taking those final exams. Here's what something, here's an observation I want you to notice. When you sit down and you've just got that pencil and they slide that exam in front of you, remember this, the teacher doesn't talk when the student is taking the test. The teacher doesn't talk when the kids in the classroom are taking the test. You're in the midst of that decision-making process, trying to figure out what God is going to do, where He's going to lead you, the direction that, that you want your life to go. God's not trying to frustrate you. What God is doing is He's wanting to see what you know and what you don't know. And that's what a test does. It determines what you do know and what you don't know. So when he's silent, he wants to see, hey, is this person going to bail when I, when I give the answer? Or is this person going to bail if I don't give the answer? Or will this person trust me? So in decisions and directions, those answers come from prayer. Paul says in Philippians, he says, and let everything, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition." Number four, prayer builds a real relationship with God. Just like what I said, prayer is a dialogue, it's not a monologue. A lot of people go to God with a grocery list. And they say, God, I need this, 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 and this. And then they leave and go on about their way. Now, can you imagine how that would work with your spouse? Hey, honey, I want eggs, I want bacon, I want toast, I want a nice glass of orange juice. Hey, get that done, I'll be right back. You think that's going to go over well? Yeah, it's going to go real well. Right on top of your head with a shoot. Honey, here's some chores I want you to do while I'm gone today. Would you take care of all these things? I'll see you at about five. You think that's going to go well? I don't think so. But how come we do that to God? God, these are the things that we need. I need to get this done, this, 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 and this. Okay, I'll catch you later. That doesn't work in any other relationship. Walking in and making demands and then just leaving. How many times do we do that when we go to prayer? We have a grocery list of God. These are your to-do lists for today. I want you to, you know, God, when you wake up, your agenda is to fix and make my life happy. Wrong. It's not what God desires. That's not his job. It doesn't work like that in any other relationship. We have to approach God with boldness, as the Scripture said, but not with arrogance. Family and friends are allowed to come. Our house has been open all... We, we have an open house. We've got neighbors that will just kind of like walk through the door. Some of them, we just walk, walk them right through to the back door. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Our house is open to family and friends. People come in, they don't even ring the doorbell sometimes, and they're allowed to come in anytime. It's open. But you're not allowed to walk in and start rearranging my furniture and take my TV remote. You're welcome in my house whenever you want to come, but don't come start telling me where my table and my chair needs to be. You understand what I'm saying? When we approach God, we approach Him boldly. We don't come in arrogantly saying, God, get these things done so that I can be the faithful Christian you want me to be. We approach God with humility. Jesus is our friend, but our friend is also the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Finally, prayer changes us. Stop trying to change God, stop trying to change Him and allow yourself to be changed your perspective, your attitude, your understanding. The first thing on God's agenda every day is not to meet our needs. The first thing on God's agenda is to make us like Christ. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, if we who are called by His name will humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from our wicked ways, He'll hear from heaven, He'll forgive our sin and heal our land. If we humble ourselves, God will not first change Himself. He will change us in the process. We need to be motivated to pray. With a few minutes left before we dismiss, I want you to be reminded that the Lord can move mountains. Don't be the leafy green believer that, when examined closely by Jesus, finds no fruit. No production. Let our church not be that church that on the outside appears to have everything going, but when you get right down to it, there's no prayer. There's no power. There's nothing but just this form of godliness and denying it. It's own power. Allow God to move those mountains in your life. That child's rebellion. Allow Him to remove those those thoughts of depression. Allow God to remove those, that insurmountable addiction that you have. Allow God to take a look at your debt that seems to be a mountain that's overwhelming you and change it. And in that process, He may change you. You see, the Lord isn't our butler. He's not our waiter. And He's certainly not our fairy godfather or godmother. But He has invited us into His family. So run to the Father. Run to Him through prayer. I want you to stand with me this morning. Next Sunday, we begin 21 days of prayer and fasting. We usually do this in January. We moved it. I wanted it to be right before Easter. I'm going to give you a handout next week. Of some things that I want you to pray with me about, I believe that God needs to begin a new and a fresh and a new revival in our church, like never before we need and revival doesn 't begin when new people start revival begins with who all 's here right now that 's where it starts when you get revived in your life when you when you fan into flame the 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 gift that God has given you. That fire begins to be contagious to your friends and family and all those people that don't know Jesus. All of a sudden, that starts changing as God begins to renew us. So next week, we begin that journey of 21 days of prayer and fasting. I've got some, some handouts about fasting. I encourage you to do that. This coming Wednesday, we have prayer and praise. Be a part of that. Those are things that you can just be involved in as a church. But I just just tell you this. Without prayer in your life, you're like a fig tree that's roots have withered. Your spiritual life becomes dry. And those mountains get hard to climb. But prayer moves those mountains. It makes your paths level. It it goes in front of you. It's, it's It's the soil that's the seed of faith gets planted in. And so this morning, we've got a couple minutes. As they sing this last song that they sang beforehand, here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to prayer with me. I want to invite you to the altar area. I know that there, you, you may think, you know, there's nothing special about, there's something about approaching God. Approaching where he is. Approaching the place where God. In the Old Testament, the altar was where God met with his people. In the New Testament, in the temple area, that's exactly the same thing that happened. That's where God meet with his people. He said, hey, I've got an appointment with you. That's where it's going to take place. And so that's why we have the altars. And we encourage people to be a part of that. I know that we can't get everybody here. But approach God Humble yourself before Him and let Him begin to move the mountains out of your way. Some of you have a lot of insurmountable things going on in your life. Let me tell you something. That thing is only going to be moved by prayer. It's not by showing up at church. It's not going to be because you read your Bible today. It's not going to be because you sang a song. It's because you begin to plant that seed of faith into the ground through prayer by digging the hole. To Get on your knees and dig that hole. So this morning, I'm inviting you to come dig the hole. Plant that faith in this morning. Thanks for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this ministry, we want to encourage you to share it. And if you don't have a church home, come join us any Sunday at 1030.